Hey, Dunker Punks. Welcome back to our latest episode. This one features Annalisa Gross interviewing Jonathan Bay about his 10 years of leadership with Women's Caucus. Jonathan talks a lot about leadership and hope in this conversation. And listening in reminded me of one of my favorite passages of scripture from Romans 12. It's Paul giving instructions for how to live a faithful life. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. I hope you, like me, find some hope in this conversation. My name is Anna Lisa Gross, and I'm excited to have this time to talk with my friend Jonathan Bay. Jonathan and I have known each other for a long time because we've both been part of the Women's Caucus Steering Committee, although I met Jonathan for the first time at Song and Story Fest more than 10 years ago. And for at least 10 years, Jonathan has been essential to the work of Women's Caucus which is a feminist organization in the Church of the Brethren. And since Jonathan is wrapping up his service with Women's Caucus, this is an opportunity to hear his reflections on the work he's done with Women's Caucus. Thank you, Jonathan, for taking this time today. Thank you, Annalisa. It's really good to be here. Um, yeah, it's it feels wild that it's been 10 years of working with Caucus. Um, a good 10, I would say. But I started as an admin person. Um, well, I started initially taking over the website and then kind of became the de facto um, admin person. And I was paid staff for, I don't know, probably something like six or seven years. And then I kind of got absorbed onto the steering committee. <laughs> um, but a lot of my job, I would say, was preserving institutional knowledge or creating structures to preserve it. Um, organizations like Caucus that have existed for uh, more than 50 years and have and are volunteer run just have a really hard time remembering what they did and how they did it. Um, and it's always, especially as we hit the 50th, it's always important to kind of look back and see where we came from and how the trajectory has changed. Um, because it's a feminist organization, it has been advocating for feminist positions within the church, right? Like um, they helped get childcare at annual conference. Um, but at the same time, it's also, we've also been um, kind of an umbrella for minority organizations. So we held a lot of space for BMC for quite a long time. Um, and minority issues are not really any different than feminist issues, um, like structurally, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I feel like it just kind of situates itself nicely for that. Um, 
but yeah, as I've seen it grow and change and shift as new energy comes in and it's always really exciting when we have new steering committee members who have new ideas and skill sets and how that changes an organization when it's really small, a new person makes a huge impact, um, always in a good way, I would say. <laughs> Um, but I can go through some of the highlights of my 10 years. <laughs> so I think uh, the biggest highlight I've seen from caucus is uh, is creating spaces for people to grow and change in positive ways. It's, it's kind of the uh, summary of it. So like for me, I got to grow and change um over 10 years and get some skills and um help the organization but something that was pretty poignant um was watching a younger a couple younger women come in to the steering committee and the steering committee really prepared them like they were very good at setting boundaries for their time um and they they only did about three years of service with caucus, which is excellent. Um, but the skills, the leadership skills that they were allowed to gain in caucus meant that they could go do denominational work um, in a way that, and, and this is this is something that caucus has been working on actively for the for quite a long time, is trying to help people get into leadership positions that feel called to do so. And so that that was like a huge success story was watching that happen. Um, and we've really been working over the last couple years very strategically about thinking about how leadership happens in the church and how it fails itself sometimes, right? Uh, the calling process is weird, at least the way that we have structured it. I think feeling the calling isn't that hard. It's maneuvering through the system we've created. Um, and so I, I think it's been fantastic to both see the positive ends of, of like what can really happen if someone feels empowered to actually move from one position of leadership to the next and then also um, really dive deep down into how the system works itself and try and get those resources out to people who haven't um, really experienced enough nurturing in that journey, essentially. Um, a, lot, a lot of our work has been at annual conference um because we're a denominational organization it's just kind of a natural setting and throughout my 10 years i've seen a move towards more and more engaging and interesting panels and conversation at the luncheon but also a move towards really trying to think about how we use conference to um, like center our mission. 
So one of those things would be praying for women on the ballot. That was something that started, I don't know, maybe in like 2014 or 15. Um, and just like that, that goes along with the leadership, the nurturing of leadership that we've been working on. But I feel like that's a small way to show that this is a really difficult process. And it's not really like, we aren't actually trying to be political about that. It's more about acknowledging that it's hard to put yourself out there and it's really hard to be voted on and and like the repercussions of that, right? Um, and and so I'm kind of proud of that situation. I've I feel like I've helped continue it. I don't think I was the one who started it, um, but I definitely think it's important that we continue to do that um, as caucus goes on. Um, I think I want to wrap up my highlights with. I feel like caucus is in a really good situation right now. And I'm very excited because we've just brought on two new steering committee members. So we have a lot more, a lot of new energy and excitement. And um, I feel like, I mean, I didn't need to be on caucus for 10 years <laughs> to hold it together or anything like that. Um, there is a really good core group, but it's always exciting to see it grow and to leave it in such a positive space. Um, yeah, so I feel like there's a lot of hope for the future of caucus. And it's exciting. I'm so glad to hear you sharing these highlights that also lead to hope. And it makes me curious if you feel hope for the denomination, if you feel hope for those who have been historically marginalized within or by the Church of the Brethren? I think it's important to hold hope, but I don't know um, how I feel about um, either of those questions that you just asked. Um, Hope is really incredibly powerful. It reminds me of, um, oh man, I'm forgetting. The Sandman show, it's also a comic strip, right? That Neil Gaiman wrote. There, There's this, so there's this section of the show where it's like, I think it's the most interesting fight scene I have ever seen in my life because it's imaginary. So it's it's just whatever uh, Lucifer can imagine and the Sandman can imagine. And the thing that, that ends up winning is hope. Nothing can beat out hope, which I think is a really powerful and very fascinating uh, like philosophical idea. And I, I want to hold that idea that hope will always end up winning in some way. I mean, does it does it matter win or lose? No, but I think 
it's true that hope is always going to let you continue in some way. Um, and it, it can eventually beat out despair, right? Um, so I want to hold on to hope. And I think that there's definitely hope for the church to continue. There's definitely hope for queer and marginalized people to continue, but I don't know that it's, it's definitely not in the current form, right? And I, I, I mean, politically, we're in a backlash era. So I don't really, I, I don't know, I want, I want there to be a bigger space for queer and marginalized folks like myself, but it's really hard to see it in the current context of the church. Um, and I feel like, but I, I, I also don't think that that has to mean we despair and feel discouraged at the same time. I think that something is going to change in some way. It's not I think I talked about this when we first did our interview that um, the the change that we're going to experience is nothing that we are hoping for, and it's going to be difficult to go through. And perhaps we're just in like we're in a part that we can't see the next step yet. Um, there and there's a whole lot of reasons beyond just normal denominational structure or outside ideas, just the way that the world is changing, right? We've gone through, we've all gone through a lot <laughs> during, during the pandemic. And I feel like it's kind of made things either more clear or less clear. And it's allowed everyone to kind of think about what they really want to be doing and where they want their energy and how much energy you actually have. Um, and I, I do feel like uh, the way that the economy works right now is like the church really has to change how it does church because there just isn't a way to support itself in the way that it has been. Um, and I, I mean, we didn't, like, historically, the church didn't fully fund itself. So, you know, but we're also at this point where volunteer, volunteerism is taking a hit as well because living wages don't really exist. So, I don't know. It, it's something that we, we can kind of look back and go, oh, we've done sort of stuff before, but we also have to come up with a more creative solution. Yes, absolutely. The definition of insanity being trying the same thing over and over, expecting different results. And what I see around me and in myself too is because people are tired, depleted, frustrated, hurting. We have so little energy to think about doing things differently. We have very little energy for creativity but then we're just running out of joy 
with so much of what we're doing. And I think back on some of the some of the times that felt more hopeful or at least more joyful in the progressive church of the brethren. I think about the progressive summits or even before either of our time, the dancing conferences. And right now we're at a place where I don't think we could pull off any of those. And that that's not a, a post-COVID reality. We hadn't had one of those gatherings in a long time before COVID either because resources are just dwindling and many of our congregations, progressive, conservative, and everybody are focusing more and more locally, both because they're struggling to have resources to do what they've been doing, the ministry and programs they've been doing, but also I think it's just part of the general cultural shift that we're living through right now is this increased sense of localism. But then it also puts Women's Caucus, Annual Conference, all of these gatherings and organizations into an interesting set of um, how is it that we can be helpful and where can we find the energy and how can we get people's limited attention for what we want them to be doing. And you've lived through 10 years of that shift. That's true. Yeah, I think... It is really interesting how I, I feel like the Church of the Brethren is very much set up to be more local anyways. Like we do have this top-down structure, but we also inherently distrust hierarchies. So uh, is a denominational system always meant to fail or like not fail, fail, but kind of be ignored because how much of it does it, how much of these positions and agreements that we talk about at annual conference affect churches day-to-day -day lives not not very much arguably i don't know so shifting a little bit since this is a conversation for dunker punks now you and i are both a little older than the average um dunker punk at least at the formation of this podcast and this movement, but when we're in church spaces, we're like almost always the youngest people. And I would like to hear your reflections on what that's been like. Huh. Um, yeah, I feel like if, it depends what space you're in, right? Um, if you're in a space that's predominantly older people, then you become the token young person. Um, and I don't speak for all young people. I maybe speak for myself sometimes. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I think that it can be... I mean, I just enjoy hanging out with older people, I think, <laughs> so too. So I don't feel like it's necessarily a bad thing. But I think that there, it can be hard to create intergenerational spaces that are uh, fruitful and intentional, essentially. Um, and... Uh, I'm trying to think if I feel like the smaller the congregation 
the easier situations like that are because if there's only 10 of you or there's only 20 of you and you know you're really going to get to know each other on a much more personal level and when you try and extrapolate out like what what do all the youth in the denomination want to do well they're not going to agree either so i don't know why we need to make generalizations like that um and I think there are, I, I feel like there's probably a number of older people that definitely want to see younger people in leadership. Um, and it's more of a case, as as we know from doing quite a lot of, um, I don't want to say research, but it kind of feels like research on how how people get nominated within the church and how people move into leadership positions. If you aren't known by anyone, it's kind of impossible. So the more people know, I, I mean, I think, I think it's a, it's not always, it shouldn't be the onus on the person wanting to move into leadership to get known. It should also be the onus of nominating committee and standing committee to be accepting of people they don't know. Yes. Right? Like it has to go both ways. Yeah. <laughs> it can't just be one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, we don't even have, part of the process is not um, a, some kind of exploratory conversation with a candidate. That's just not even written into the system because we assume we're all going to know each other enough or somebody in the room will know the person and therefore we can proceed without having talked to them. So tell us a little bit about how you came into the church of the brethren and what that's been like for you. Uh, well, I met my now wife, um, in college and she was, I, I grew up I think I was baptized Methodist and then I was Presbyterian um, and, but never like really involved. I didn't even know you could be like part of leadership. I didn't understand that you could like volunteer to do things with the church. Um, anyways, she talked to me about the church that she went to and it sounded really interesting so i eventually <laughs> got baptized um it sounded like a, a cool deal but what's funny is as we met before i transitioned and then as we stayed or like got together as i was transitioning the first annual conference i went to was in 2008 and um, I was part of, I think there was a protest, something to do with, uh, now I kind of can't remember exactly what um, paper it was, but I think it had to do with not allowing queer folks to be ordained. So I like I just kind of got thrown into that part immediately, and I don't know why I, you know, I decided, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> I'll continue, <laughs> even though 
uh, I'm maybe not affirmed fully in this space. Um, I can't really explain why that was fine, but but also at the same time, I was part of like my local church was much more affirming. Um, and it's pretty easy to recognize that because of how the Church of the Brethren works, however your local congregation is, if it's affirming of you, that's, you know, that's fine, right? Um, but I did end up doing a lot more denominational work. Like I was, I mean, I did BBS, but I was also on the Young Adult Steering Committee for a bit. Um, but then I moved abroad. And so my relationship with the church became working with caucus. And, you know, if you don't have to, if you can leave and not have to deal with things and you can create a supportive network for yourself, is it really that? difficult no um, so I don't I don't quite know what it's like to be severely wounded by the church mm -hmm. is essentially all I'm saying and yeah. I think that's a very different position yes because you had grown up with feet planted in other worlds and you even though I have felt like you fully embraced and you know try immersed yourself into the church of the brethren um you also know what it's like to live outside of the Church of the Brethren, and I think that does tend to help us be a little healthier in our mindsets and and remember um, that our identity and our spirituality is not defined by the Church of the Brethren. That's true. Yeah, it was really interesting um, when I was living abroad. The church that we went to was partnered, I think. I can't remember the term. It doesn't really matter. But um, they were partnered with MCC. And so, you know, that that was actually very eye-opening um, and kind of showed me, like, how little the Church of the Brethren really supports queer leadership because at that church, the associate pastor was trans. Like, it was the largest number of trans people I had seen outside of a conference at a church, which was just like mind blowing. Um, and I mean, granted it was like 10 or 15 people on any given, given Sunday because, you know, it was also a small church also dealing with the same problems that all other churches are dealing with, with, you know, not having high enough attendance, not having enough young kids, blah, blah, blah. So not unique, but um, unique in the fact that leadership positions were encouraged regardless of who you were. Um, and I think because it was a partnered church, you didn't necessarily, oh, did you have to? You could do a lot without actually having to decide to become part of the denomination that it was of. So now that you've piqued our interest, tell us about how it is that you ended up spending those years in Scotland. Uh, um, well, 
we graduated from our undergrad, like kind of peak recession and very difficult to get a job. So we decided to go do grad school because we could do that. Um, Scotland's very interesting because all the schools were free applications and their master's programs are one year instead of two. Um, it's it's different because it's intensive. So it's a full year. It's you don't get a summer. You don't get like really don't. I mean, you get normal holidays, but it, it's different than typical master's programs. So uh, yeah, we were like, sure, why not? Little did we know they really want international students because you pay a bigger bill than uh, locals do. A lot has changed now, but um, cost of living was like relatively the same. So we were like, cool. Um, and then we just kept doing grad school because <laughs> uh, it was interesting and, and enjoyable. So um and yeah, it was a wild experience. <laughs> yeah, we like to learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so do you want to tell us a little bit about what you were doing? And then you could also bring up to, bring us up to speed in what you've been doing since. Sure. Um, so Elizabeth, so my, my partner went to do engineering and get postgraduate degrees in um, sustainable and renewable energies, which is, I, I only talk about that because we grew up in California. California has a like pretty decent green energy um, sector. However, it's very hard to get into. Um, and we like, because it came up in the industry as opposed to in the UK, they used they like funded their education system to build it up. Uh, so anyways, they have more interesting degrees there. I did creative writing. Um, and so we're quite different in our mental capacities. Um, but yeah, so I... I have a master's and PhD in poetry, in creative writing. Um, and what's really kind of turned me on to wanting to do this in Scotland was because the writing scene is so small. Um, it's small, welcoming, and really, I would say like life-giving. Um, and there's like a lot of different ways to enter into the writing scene, which is, it just feels like arts funding is quite different. And maybe it's because I was in the capital city, which is always gonna have more funding. Um, you know, like if I was living in New York City, there would be a lot more arts funding or, um, or local things, right? But um, 
there doesn't really seem to be a huge barrier. Uh, and that was something that really drove me to stay. It's also a literature city just in general. So that's probably why they have more funding, but they have their own poetry library, which is pretty cool. Um, and, you know, um, the queer poetry scene grew quite a lot while I was there. And I mean, they're dealing with similar problems <laughs> that we are with funding cuts and that sort of thing. But it does seem that the queer scene is still thriving, even if it's through other means like crowdfunding and that sort of situation. I lived in Northern Ireland for a year and quite a few of my local friends were living on the dole, but doing that while actively being a musician or a full-time volunteer, there were so many ways that people were really contributing out of their passions and their gifts and also growing their skills while supported through the government. And it gave me um, a taste of you know, like in the U.S., if you start talking about universal basic income or something, there's a quick sense of everybody's going to just sit at home on their couch playing video games all day. And that's just not what I experienced at all in the U.K. People were absolutely out in the world, engaging with other people, serving. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you don't have to worry about health care, if you don't have like if that's not attached to your job, you have a lot more flexibility to do whatever you want to do. Um, I think that's a good point that there are, like also, I could reasonably live on a part-time job. Yeah. Like one of us could have had a full, no, I think the, the cost of living was just a lot lower. Has it increased? Yeah, because of Brexit. But mm -hmm. there's like livable wages. Yeah. Um, and there, I would say the UK is not like well known for that right. by any means. So just saying that like it's not the most livable wage, but it's yeah. it can happen in a way that I feel like it, it really can't mm -hmm. in the US. Yeah. You can't survive at all on a part-time job. Right. So, Absolutely. You know, it. there are ways that we can foster uh, growing our communities in positive ways, essentially. Yeah, well, and I go back to what you were saying about hope and part of, part of the way we might find hope is that it's really helpful to see models of how a community can work better and not feel like we... I mean, it, first of all, because it proves that it's possible. And then second of all, it means we don't have to reinvent every wheel. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. That just because we need to change things doesn't mean that we have to, that we're starting from nothing. Right. There are a lot of, there are a lot of places we can look to. We just have to be flexible. And I think that the problem is a lot of our systems don't, allow for that yes yeah I think that's structural true. problem essentially mm -hmm. well here's um a cheesy transition then so somebody in your life who has taught you a lot about being flexible is your dog 
And before we let you go from this intellectual, thoughtful conversation, I think we all want to learn more about your very special needs dog. Oh, yeah. I forgot to say to move <laughs> from what I was doing to what I'm currently doing. <laughs> um, yeah, so we adopted this very silly old dog um, who had a lot of behavioral issues. I remember we, we were sort of like, oh, we have to we have to go see her, but I don't know if we can. And so we emailed them and immediate immediate relief of like, oh no, they're not gonna like let her get adopted out from under us because it was this like pages long response of, okay, are you sure? Here's all the problems. <laughs> uh, and we naively were like, sure, let's try it. Why not? Um, so she has severe separation anxiety, very, very, very difficult time forming relationships, like new relationships. Um, also is touch sensitive. <laughs> so like it took us, uh maybe six months before we could touch her just like a small pat on the back sort of a situation um we're almost up to the point where we can like give her normal pets but it's always on her terms um and so yeah a lot of our life has had to we did not realize how much had to change uh, to accommodate her, but it has been very rewarding. I mean, you know, if you deal with it, if you've ever had to deal with an animal that you need to build any amount of trust with before you can start um, really kind of... <laughs> being in their space, it's incredibly rewarding. So we, we've just seen so many milestones that we thought, you know, the, the shelter that we got her from, they were the first time they're like, you may never be able to touch this dog. Like, we don't know. Um, you may never be able to do all of these things. And she goes on trips with us all the time. She now has gone kayaking she's gone on a boat like these are all things that i think they were like what <laughs> um she's she goes off leash which they were definitely like oh no um so i mean within reason right but she and she's also made friends with my parents dog which is huge because she also doesn't get along with other dogs. Um, it's very controlled, but they seem to like each other. So, you know, it it has been kind of wild. <laughs> A lot of growth and like learning what boundaries are, like really learning what boundaries are. Um, and a lot of joy, I I think. We, we have talked about how I don't know that we would have gotten through COVID as easily as we did without this dog who 
wakes up happy every day. I mean, not every day. Sometimes she's a grump, but you know, aren't we all? Yes. <laughs> uh, but you know, she got us to do things like go. For, we had to go for a walk every day, multiple times. Um, we had to explore our city that we moved to um, through her. We had, so, you know, it, it feels, it feels like she definitely, like we've kind of, you know, that cliche of we've kind of rescued each other sort of a situation. Um, but yeah, she loved it because she just got to be with us all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's all she wants. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, I think of the story of the shepherd who has the 99 but goes out to find the one sheep. And it's like you two have made a full-time job out of forming a relationship with that one. And it's benefited all of you so much. And to take boundaries seriously, to give proper respect to boundaries is a lesson I think most of us need and definitely in the church and definitely in serving caring professions. So that wisdom that you have gained through her is wisdom that we all could benefit from. Yeah, boundaries. I mean, I think that the way that they've started to be talked about can sound like really strange and can be used in unhealthy ways, but the base of it is that we all should be able to take care of ourselves in the ways that we need to take care of ourselves. I think that's it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And we just need to respect when the other person needs that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, two-legged or four-legged person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's actually a really beautiful day in Indiana. It's 65 degrees and sunny for once. What's it like in California? Uh, we've got some gray skies today, but that's, you know, that's fine. Is it <laughs> I don't ever complain. I rejoice with the gray skies. Oh, really? Honest. Okay. Well, I guess you did yeah. like Scotland, so. Yeah, I mean, I I was reading something that people actually get sads in the summer in LA because the constant heat is unchanging. So it's, it doesn't necessarily have to do with daylight or not daylight. It's the lack of change um, in your environment, right? Fascinating. Yeah. And the heat's really oppressive. So you're just yeah. like trying to hide from it when yeah. it's real bad. And if it's endless heat. Right. Right. I so get it. whether it's cold or heat that makes you stay want to stay inside all day, either one is going to be depressing. Yeah. 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 So I'm excited. We might get a little rain. Who knows? All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope that those who are listening, wherever you are, we hope that you're getting the kind of day you need today. That's true. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Annalisa. I think it's really fitting that Jonathan ends this conversation about leadership and hope by talking about his dog. 
He and his partner adopted their dog, even though they knew she had a lot of challenges. And when they brought her home, they thought they might not ever be able to even pet her. But with patience, kindness, and a real sense of respect for her boundaries, it sounds like they've all been surprised by how their relationship has grown. And it made me wonder, as I was listening to Jonathan talk about his dog, if experiences like that, watching something everyone thought was probably impossible, happen right in front of his eyes, are part of what have shaped Jonathan's patient, persistent leadership in the church. He says, when Annalisa asks, that he definitely wants to hold on to hope, but he also knows that the changes that are coming won't be anything like what we were expecting. Makes me think that maybe the willingness to show up, do good work, pray for one another, and trust in the Spirit's leading, maybe that's enough. Even if we can't see how it will all turn out, even if we can't even see what the next right step is. You know, sort of like what Paul says in Romans, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, persevere in prayer. I'm grateful for this conversation that grew out of Jonathan's long tenure in leadership with Women's Caucus, for the reminders of what Paul's instructions for a faithful life look like in real time. And I wonder, Dunker Punks, where you might feel like you're being called to rejoice in hope today. Or maybe there's a place in your life where you are being invited to be patient in affliction. Or maybe there's a situation that you're in right now that you need to navigate with prayer as one of your constant companions. Hey, thanks for listening. The Dunker Punks podcast works hard to invite all of us to find ways to rejoice in hope. This episode was created by Annalisa Gross for Women's Caucus and edited by Tyler North. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Cassell. I use she, her pronouns. Jacob Kraus creates our music. Suzanne Lay manages production. Wichita First Church of the Brethren, Long Green Valley Church of the Brethren, Living Stream Church of the Brethren, Warrensburg Church of the Brethren, Beacon Heights Church of the Brethren, Arlington Church of the Brethren, and On Earth Peace sponsor the show. Did you notice that list is growing? There are so many ways for you to connect with the Dunker Punks podcast. Will you be at annual conference this summer? We're recruiting interviewers for live recordings of annual conference leadership. If you'll be there and you're interested, or if you want to recommend a youth or young adult to do it, you can email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. You heard that long list of congregations that are sponsoring the podcast. We're trying to recruit 20 congregations. Our congregations are all about faith formation, and they know that it's important to encourage youth to share what they have to say and their experiences of following Jesus. So one way to encourage youth is to support this platform where youth speak up regularly to amplify young voices of faith and give them opportunities to start conversations. We have a really beautiful informational packet about how your congregation can sponsor the podcast. 
The Ask is a $200 line in your budget for the Dunker Punks podcast. Talk to your church board chair or your pastor. Together, we can value, literally with dollars, what young people of faith have to say. Hey, we're also hiring a communications intern. If you or somebody you know are a current or recent secondary education student, you're eligible. It's a part-time, remote, paid position that Honor Peace sponsors. You get to work with the fantastic, non-hierarchical project team of the Dunker Punks who live across the country. You would help recruit new voices, get to know the young people who speak up on the show, and help them make connections with their message. Lots of experience, interpersonal communications. You get to immerse yourself in storytelling and spiritual discourse, promoting reflection, action, service, social justice, advocacy, and creation care. And, oh, did I mention you would also get paid? You've heard our email address. Send us a note if you're interested. DPP at arlingtoncob.org. Be on the lookout for our next episode scheduled to go live on June 3rd from Colby and the Wichita First Church of the Brethren. Until then, Dunker Punks, I hope and pray that you find many, many reasons to rejoice in hope.